The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and today I'm standing in for David Rothkopf as host. We don't know where David is, as usual. His, His location is a mystery to all of us. But that's okay, because even though we're going to miss David Rothkopf, um, we have two people with us here today. Uh, Corey Shockey, one of our regulars. Corey from the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, Corey. It's so nice to be with you, Rosa, and under your leadership helm. My leadership is very leader-like. Um, I think you'll all experience this in my my leaderly way. Uh, I'm now going to introduce you, Aaron. Um, we also have with us a uh, frequent guest, Aaron David Miller. Uh, Aaron is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former State Department Middle East advisor and negotiator. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Israel and Gaza and the general horrors of the world. Um, And let me start off uh, asking you, Aaron, um, about uh, what Israel is doing as we as we as we record this on Wednesday early afternoon. um, Israel has been uh, undertaking an operation in the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. Uh, There are reports of, you know, soldiers bursting into hospital rooms with wounded patients and and uh, Israel is, of course, saying we are taking every precaution to distinguish between uh, civilians and combatants and to respect the, the sanctity of civilian life and to respect the fact that this is a, a hospital. Uh, but we had to go in here because Hamas is, is lurking uh, within. Um, and of course, uh, many other observers are saying this is a complete outrage. Uh, hospitals should be off limits. There should not be soldiers in hospitals. Um, how do you, what's your take on this in terms of, uh, is your sense that, is this something that Israel just really had no alternative but to do? Because obviously when an organization is essentially using human shields and taking a place that's ordinarily off limits to military targeting or operations and using it, that changes its status, even though it doesn't take away the legal requirement to discriminate between combatants and civilians. I mean, do you think that Israel's were they left with no choice or is this something that is still just either either illegal or just a really bad idea? 
I think the, the point of departure is October 7, which has enlarged Israel's determination, its capacity, and also uh, contracted its margin for error. Because what they've done is not a, uh, beginning on October 27th when they uh, essentially began the ground campaign. Uh, what they've done here is not another wash, rinse, and repeat cycle, uh, as they've done in 2008, 2009, 2011, 2014, 2021. Uh, limited ground incursions in two of those operations, mostly efforts to counter uh, Hamas rockets with Israeli artillery and airstrikes, uh, either an, uh, a Qatari or an Egyptian brokered ceasefire. We return to status quo ante. And basically, the situation remains the same. I might, I might add, it remains the same in large part, in my judgment, because Hamas and, and the current government of Israel, and this has been going on for at least a decade, have a mutual interest in ensuring that, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, we have the three-state solution instead of the two-state solution. Uh, Hamas's control of Gaza virtually guarantees that the Palestinian national movement will not have a Monopoly over the forces of violence within Palestinian society cannot produce a interlocutor that uh, is governed by the proposition of one authority, one gun when negotiating. As long as that remained basically intact, the fact that the Palestinian national movement looks like Noah's Ark, they're basically two of everything, two statelets, two constitutions, two security services, two patrons, two visions of where Palestine is and what it's supposed to be. As long as that was the reality, and the government of Israel was um, basically sheltered from any serious effort by anybody uh, to bring pressure in, in, into a negotiation. October 7 changed it. Uh, the Israeli ambassador said on October 6, we were one country, uh, Ambassador Herzog to the uh, uh, United States. October 6, we were one country, October 8, we were another country. So that meant a ground campaign designed to, depending on choices of words, to collapse, eradicate, demolish. Hamas is a military organization. I don't think the Israelis are under any illusion that they can kill the idea uh, of what Hamas represents. Um, but certainly they could make huge uh, dent and beyond that in their military capacity. So that brings them into the heart of Gaza. And even with their knocks on the roofs and warnings and pressure, you still have several hundred thousand people in Gaza City, maybe more, and you have Hamas, which the, the evidence from two days ago at, at Rantisi Children's Hospital, which they produced, seemed to suggest, backed up by American intelligence, I might add, yesterday, that in fact Hamas was using schools, residential neighborhoods, hospitals co-locating their assets for any number of reasons. So then the question becomes, can you prosecute a war against such a, an adversary without killing exponentially large numbers of Palestinians? And I put this question to David Petraeus when I interviewed him this week and others. And the answer is probably not. I mean, do I believe that is, the Israelis are willfully and intentionally killing Palestinians? No. Do I believe that when it comes to distinction and proportionality, that their rules of engagement probably in the wake of 
until the seven man expanded, particularly with their airstrikes? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think they've expanded. And, you know, we've taught we, here we go again. The Biden administration, Aaron, you've been out of government for 20 years. It's not we. The Biden administration has talked to them about changing their ordinance, right? Don't use 1,000, 2,000 pound bombs. Use small diameter bombs. And Bill Burns was there talking about um, intelligence sharing to help them you know, use scalpel rather than a a sledgehammer in, in some of these airstrikes. But I think the answer is um, it's a cruel dilemma. I don't I don't see how you navigate that line. So it brings them into Shifa Hospital. They've yet to produce what I think they believe is there, um, and that's where we stand. I mean. The good news for them is the pictures bringing incubators and other medical supplies into the hospital. That'll help. But the information war, I think they've already lost. Corey, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree with uh, everything Aaron said. I It grieves me that in 2001, after the United States was the victim of a terrorist attack, that we didn't think more creatively about updating the Geneva Conventions to a set of circumstances where states were going to face asymmetric challengers um, because it it's so awful. And yet um, I think, you know, uh, the United States, could we prosecute the war any different or better than Israel is prosecuting it in a heavily urban area. I'm skeptical we could either. I mean, I think the dilemma here is, is I mean, yes, and we didn't do the world's greatest job, right? In, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the civilian death toll was astronomical. And, and I think that I think that this is one of the paradoxes of the laws of armed conflict is that you can comply with the law and still engage in actions that cause just stunning amounts of civilian suffering, you know, and, and it's, it's not, I think we tend to, we, we often will sort of think of this as, well, it's a legal issue, but it's, it's really once, once you've committed to saying, we're going to go in there and we're going to root these people out, you are committing yourself to a course of action that is going to lead to really catastrophic levels of civilian suffering, which then, of course, raises the question, well, are there alternatives? Is this something where there's, there is no military solution to this particular problem if you've got, if you've got an enemy, whether it's a terror group or, or any other kind of adversary who is so, so successfully managed to hide within a civilian population um, is that a situation where you just have to back off? I mean, is that a reason? Would that have been a reasonable thing, Aaron, to expect the Israelis to do to sort of to say, okay, we've sort of made our point, Hamas, which is that we are bigger and stronger than you are, and we can keep on killing people more or less indefinitely, but we're not going to. We're going to find some other way to address this problem. I mean, and, and just say, because we're not willing to kill 10 civilians for every every Hamas militant we kill. We, I mean, is that something they they was that was that an option for them? Um, that kind of magnanimity, um, even though there's this huge asymmetry of power, was I think not not possible in the wake of October seventh. 
And I think the intimacy, the sadistic intimacy of the killing on October 7th, the barbarity and cruelty, the torturing before the killing and the indiscriminate and mass killing um, traumatized a country that it was seemingly inured to a large degree to any number of Israeli-Palestinian confrontations, including suicide bombings in, in late 01, uh, 2002, um, which characterized the Palestinian Intifada. This was much, much, much worse. And it carried the additional trauma of if, if the legitimacy of the contract between the governed and the governed is the capacity of the governing authority to protect and secure its citizenry. This was a traumatic failure. It took anywhere from three to 12 hours for organized units, special forces to get down there to Gaza in order to try to save these people. And by then it was too late. So no, I think that the sun, the moon, and the stars was in a, 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 a pretty bloody alignment here. And I, don't, I think the Israelis had no, no other option. The other, the other issue is people compare it to 9-11. I mean, it really wasn't because we didn't have a proximity problem with Al-Qaeda or, frankly, with the Islamic State or any of the jihadi derivatives. Uh, Israel has a proximity problem. That's the problem not just with Hamas, but with the general nature of, the, of, of its relationship with the Palestinians. We're talking about, you know, kilometers. And uh, I think that um, the Israelis reluctantly have, had avoided doing this for quite some time, certainly since Hamas took over in Gaza in 07. I think they had no, no alternative. Um, but to do this now, could it have been done in a, in a different way? You know, they, 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 the Biden administration sent a three-star who had overseen operations in, in Mosul. I'm sure he, he gave them, um, you know, the best advice he could. Um, but I think, by and large, the Petraeus notion of house, house by house, apartment block by apartment block, building by building to clean, hold, and then build is what the Israelis appear to be doing. But again, they control the information space in Gaza. We're not really aware of the granularity of, of their strategy or what they fully intend in the weeks going forward or what they intend for southern Gaza. I mean, you've invoked David Petraeus. So, Corey, let me add, I mean, this is goes the famous, most famous line from David Petraeus is asking about Iraq. How does this end? Um, I mean, looking at this, uh, does this, does this end, you know, or is this just setting themselves up for essentially permanent war and a form of war that is going because because it's right next door, and it's not just next door; it's literally it's intermingled with Israelis. You know, because of that, are they just setting them up themselves up for a a kind of a conflict that will depend on sort of permanent subjugation of a population, and and potentially 
a regional conflagration. I mean, obviously, tensions are extraordinarily high uh, with many other nations, um, in particular, several that are U.S. allies, including NATO members such as Turkey, Jordan, uh, who, who responded to the raid on Al-Shifa Hospital with, with outrage and condemnation. You know, Corey, how, how does this end? Does this turn into a wider regional conflict? Does this just turn into a kind of horrific festering sore in which we can expect for the next, you know, decade, two decades, constant deaths every day, particularly of Palestinians? So uh, this is the outcome Hamas's attack was designed to create. I mean, that's what terrorists do. They thrive on the reaction of traumatized victims. And I think that's what we are seeing play out. I can't myself figure out a good ending to what's going on now. I mean, I think there are at least three possibilities, right? Oh, I'm sorry. One thing I would add to what Aaron said before about the degree of difficulty of urban warfare is the tunnel system that Hamas is operating is something we've never had to deal with in warfare. So it's not just uh, urban terrain, it's also subsurface urban terrain. Um, And so they're trying to foreclose concealed avenues of movement on the part of Hamas as well. Um, It is shocking, uh, given how long Israel has been dealing with the circumstance of Hamas control of Gaza, that there doesn't appear to be a phase four plan. Yeah, well, let me ask, can I also ask you to talk about Hamas? I mean, just, just I don't mean to cut you off, because just to add to the question, and, and then for you as well, Aaron. So... Hamas, what is going on with, is this just complete nihilistic thinking at this point on the part of Hamas? Is this just, we, we, we've, we have failed to assert the type of influence we had hoped to assert in every other means. And so let's just blow it all up and that's cool. I mean, what on earth? No, I think they are asserting the influence they want, which is provocative, which is, um, you know, unconcerned with Palestinian costs and casualties, that that they want a war that's about uh, the destruction of Israel or the destruction of Hamas. I mean, they really, it's a zero-sum game, it looks to me, for Hamas. And so this is the war they want. Whereas I think for Israelis, they don't have a good answer of what comes after they succeed on the battlefield because they don't want to govern Gaza. They don't want Hamas to govern Gaza. Uh, It's not clear the Palestinian Authority would have legitimacy to govern Gaza. It's not clear anybody who, who is acceptable to Israelis will be acceptable to Palestinians. Um, and and I think we're also at risk of Turkey volunteering for that job in a way that would 
benefit Hamas because of their connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. But Aaron knows 20 times more about it than I do. No, I mean, Corey's, I think Corey's right. Um, I think that um, military leadership, uh, look, if, if Hamas is the religious embodiment of an idea, and that idea is the destruction of Israel and its replacement over time, years, decades, centuries, with a, an Islamic state, if offered, if offered a secular state, in part of Palestine, I'm not sure that the organization would be willing and able to accept it. I think the ob objective here was to dominate the Palestinian national movement, to, to reveal how feckless and irrelevant the Palestinian authority is, was, I think it was to provoke, that was their, whether it was an expectation or a hope, regional conflict. They hoped that Jerusalem, it was called the, it's called the Al-Aqsa flood, and yet Jerusalem has remained preternaturally quiet. The West Bank less, less so, but you're still not faced with a massive uprising. And Hezbollah is drawing the appropriate conclusions. If this isn't going to be a regional war, the Palestinians aren't going to be able to inflame Jerusalem and the West Bank into some sort of uh, all-hands-on-deck uprising, then we're not going to waste our assets, carefully cultivated, our high-trajectory weapons, particularly with two carrier strike groups deployed in the Eastern Med with 200 strike aircraft, we're not going to waste our assets to join this fight in a way that would truly reframe this entire conflict and perhaps even draw the Iranians in. So I think Hamas um, believed or still believes that this provocation, um, this regional anger, uh, we live on for a very long time. I think they somehow believe that they can still reconstitute themselves as some sort of insurgency. Drawing, I think they believed, unless they were untethered from reality, that the Israelis would have no choice but to mount a ground campaign. Uh, and if they just survive, if on the final day of conflict before, I don't know, ceasefire is probably the wrong word, if, the, if on the penultimate day of conflict, they're able to launch any number of rockets in Israel proper, they're going to consider this a victory, which is why a ceasefire, which the most every human on the planet uh, and his mother and grandmother and grandmother and grandfather want to have happen, is precisely, in, in some respects, what Hamas wants to continue to drag this out. And we haven't talked about the H word, the hostages. They become pawns in this game. I would expect that in coming days, there will be a release uh, in exchange for X number of days and Palestinian prisoners out of Israeli jails, women and, women and, and, um, and children, or at least uh, adolescents in the case of the Israelis, babies and kids in the case of Hamas releases. Um, and then you'll just see this conflict continue. Um, as far as the day after, I think we have to abandon that phrase and start thinking about uh, a different sort of temporal element. It's really not the day after. There won't be a bright line between 
the end of Israel's military action and some period of tranquility, which will allow uh, any of the scenarios, some of which Corey referred to, to take hold. I don't see the Palestinian Authority, to use Blinken's word, revitalized, um, assuming control. Arab boots on the ground, particularly Turkish boots on the ground, having to repress a Palestinian insurgency would bring, you know, bring bring uh, Erdogan back to the days of the Ottoman occupation or governance in in a large part of the Arab world. He doesn't want that. The Egyptians, under no circumstances, want any administrative control, and they don't want to accept and will not accept large numbers of Palestinians in Egypt proper. A multinational force, coalition of the willing. I mean, I just, I don't see it unless the Israelis literally succeed in pacifying. And I, that, that's unlikely, given, you know, you kill one and you get, you produce five more. Netanyahu has said that he thinks the only path forward here is going to be Israel assuming more or less indefinite control of Gaza after the sort of more active phase of fighting ends, Um, uh, which is to say, you know, indefinite full occupation. And and obviously, uh, critics of Israeli policy would argue that Israel has never stopped occupying Gaza, Gaza, at least in the sense that even if if you haven't had large numbers of Israeli soldiers permanently inside Gaza, that Israel exercises effective control for legal purposes, you know, in terms of the ability to turn on and off the flow of everything from electricity to food and medical assistance. Um, but but even leaving aside that sort of legal question of whether they ever stopped occupying Gaza, clearly there is a difference between a relatively hands-off form of occupation where there's always that threat of withholding of resources, but you don't have soldiers who are literally uh, patrolling every single street versus what, what Netanyahu is now talking about, which is, which is, you know, the, the, the at least indefinite length presence of very large numbers of Israeli forces right there on every street corner, potentially coming in and out of every house at any given moment. Um, Obviously, the U.S. has made it pretty clear to the Israelis that we don't think this is a particularly good idea. Um, In fact, we think it's a bad idea. But um, do we have any... Well, well, there'll be two questions. Number one, do you agree that uh, uh, indefinite Israeli occupation of Gaza would be a really bad idea? Is, or, or, you know, are we missing something? And number two, do we actually have, do we really have leverage at this point? Having failed to use much leverage so far, do we have leverage now? Uh, let me let me go to you first, Corey, and then, then back to you, Aaron, and then we're going to take a short break. I'm not sure we ever had much leverage over Israeli decisions one of the reasons that I thought the potential, the potential for a U.S.-Israeli-Saudi series of interlocking security treaties was implausible is that Israel has never wanted to be restrained by uh, American preferences where the security of their state is concerned. And I don't think they're particularly concerned about our... Uh, interests now. 
even less than usual. So no, I don't think we have a ton of influence. Um, I, I also think that um, as terrible an option as Israel, Israeli control of Gaza will be, there's not going to be a good answer to this. There's not an obvious answer to it either. And given that Israel is the country, is the government, is the military that's prosecuting the war in Gaza, certain responsibilities accrue for for what happens next. And so I think it's likely that that's going to be the unpleasant outcome for everybody concerned. Yeah. I think I think on the issue of leverage, look, I think we could have written the script um, before Biden gave his October 10th speech, which was one of the most emotionally wrenching and powerful of his presidency. Uh, the president's persona, the fact that he alone among modern American presidents probably considers himself part of the Israeli narrative. I mean, the, the presidential model here is not Barack Obama for, for Biden, it's Bill Clinton. Both um, of these men, even though a generation apart, have this love of the idea of Israel imprinted on their emotional and and political DNA. Um, I watched Clinton, and Clinton never had the kind of experience. He was a newbie on this stuff. He never had the kind of history with the Israelis and Biden. And yet I saw Clinton in the wake of Rabin's murder. You know, he write, he writes in his memoirs, I loved Rabin as I had, as I have rarely loved another man. That's an extraordinary statement for a U.S. president to make. And if you add to Biden's gut uh, pro-Israeli sensibilities, the politics, you've got a Republican Party that is the Israel can do no wrong party, and you've got a deeply divided Democratic Party. Majority of 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 which are. Um, traditional supporters of Israel, willing to speak out a little more in terms of being critical and a rising tide of progressives who not only are willing to speak out, but they want to impose costs and accountability. And then you add to that what we've talked about, which is we don't have a better answer to Israel's Dilemma, the, the, the three cruel dilemmas that is four cruel dilemmas that Israel faces. Number one, how do you prosecute a war without killing innocents? Number two, what do you do about the humanitarian catastrophe? You've got half the population of Gaza completely now displaced. Winter is coming. A quarter, maybe more, of all the structures in Gaza City has been destroyed. What are the, where are these, what are these people going to do? And finally, well, the hostages. Plus we, we don't have a better answer. dead UN employees, so right. And then you've got <laughs> to help solve that problem, but right. And then you've got the day after problem. We don't have any better answers than the Israelis, and I think not having answers to those questions put us in a very weak position to offer the Israelis advice. Well, you're not. Neither of you cheering me up. Um, but this is the moment where we take a short break during which I, I urge you both to come up with something happy to say. Um, so our subscribers 
uh, can return and listen to the rest of this podcast. Corey is waving a banana flavored Laffy Taffy at me. Our listeners that absolute best Halloween candy. That's my happy message. So after the break, we're going to be distributing banana flavored Laffy Taffy, but only to our subscribers. So if you wanted to be fortunate recipients of Laffy Taffy so that you can laugh right along with us, um, you have to shell out the paltry amount of money it would take you to become a Deep State Radio subscriber. And we urge you all to do that. If you don't want to have happy things in your life, if you just want a future of misery and war, then go ahead. Don't subscribe. Be that way. Um, uh, goodbye. We'll see those of you who don't like Laffy Taffy next week. But for the rest of you subscribers, um, we'll be right back. 